Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the Invest Beta Podcast. We are your hosts, Navdeep and Jason. And today we will dive into the different types of securities institutional investors can purchase. These include equities, bonds, money market securities, and derivatives. We'll go over definitions, key points, risks and return, and how the security markets work. While we do that, we'll have a pragmatic discussion about how you should think about incorporating the different types of investments in your personal portfolio. So the first type of security that we'll be talking about are equities, which are also referred to as stocks. So these securities simply represent partial ownership in a public company. So for example, let's take a company like Tesla. They have 947.9 million outstanding shares. And when you multiply it by the share price of $663.82 per share, you will arrive at a market capitalization or market cap of about $630 billion. So this is how we determine the amount that a publicly traded company is actually worth on the stock market. Uh, and stock prices, of course, like any other asset, is determined by supply and demand. However, it is actually quite difficult to measure that. Um, However, the intrinsic value of a business, the true worth of its cash flows as well as, as well as its assets can be very, very different from the market cap. So this is also called market inefficiency. Uh, and based on different valuation methods that we can use, uh, we can find value stocks with market prices that are trading below their intrinsic value. I think a key example of that and uh, one that like I use because I play a bunch of stock market games is um, after a company undergoes a change in management due to a scandal, um, investors are bound to like sell their shares, avoid buying that stock or paying much less for it. And so this happened to Afria, which is a cannabis producer uh, in 2018. So what happened was an executive from a New York asset management firm, he, flew over to Jamaica where Afria had a bunch of facilities where they grew their products and processed them. And he found them like they're completely broke down and you know, it wasn't, it was nowhere near worth the $700 million price that they acquired these businesses for. And because of that, the stock price crashed to half its value over four months. However, in the aftermath, they fired a bunch of people, and they brought in a new CEO and management. And these people changed the culture a lot by improving accountability. And they're really good at managing operations. So shortly after that happened, the stock rebounded a little bit. And that's because the market tends to overreact when any bad news breaks out because everybody wants to cash in on that news. Yeah, so I think NAFTI provided a really interesting example uh, on really how intrinsic value and market value relates to a specific company. So to really expand on his example, we can examine a, a really common classific classification of equities, uh, especially among finance academia. And that is the difference between value stocks and growth stocks. So as he mentioned before, value stocks are those with market prices that trade below their intrinsic value or the true worth of the underlying business. On the other hand, growth stocks are those that can outperform the market due to the firm's growth potential. So this could be in terms of revenue, 
profit, etc. And a lot of institutional investors really look to generate alpha or outperform the market by finding companies that are currently undervalued or have incredible growth potential. One thing to note about this type of classification is that it's actually very subjective and it can change very, very quickly, right? Because one investor may believe that a stock is undervalued while another may not. Uh, and also if a market realizes the intrinsic value of a company uh, by having the stock price go up, it is no longer a value stock. So things obviously change very quickly in capital markets. Another classification that we can use for stocks that's a little bit more objective and inclusive is uh, classifying equities by their macroeconomic dependency. So basically it's how does economic performance of a given country or a given area affect that business's operations and success. So cyclical firms are those with revenues and profits that are extremely dependent on economic conditions. So this is especially true for companies that sell luxury goods or services. Um, it's also true for companies like auto manufacturers as well as airlines. So to really give an example, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, General Motors and American Airlines, which of course are two very large auto manufacturers and airline companies, they both required bailouts from the American government. And this is because the recession really uh, damaged their profits and as a result, uh, they effectively declared bankruptcy. Uh, the difference, uh, be, uh, another type of firm that's different from cyclical firms are those that are defensive. So those are firms with revenues and profits that are, that are not as tied to certain economic conditions, right? Uh, companies that have consistent revenue and profits. So this includes uh, Procter & Gamble as an example, which sells household items, as well as utility companies and other secular growth firms. So generally speaking, uh, defensive stocks are considered safer than their cyclical counterparts. Uh, and this is simply because um, uh, their cash flows are much more predictable and so they're less volatile. Uh, however, that being said, even defensive stocks are still considered riskier than other fixed income assets such as treasury bonds. So I have a question. Obviously to hedge against risk, portfolios are usually diversified. And what are some ways, other ways to buy low risk stocks? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So in order to address this, we can actually look at different assets that buy bundles of bonds or stocks. So one of them are ETFs or exchange traded funds, which are effectively just a basket of stocks, bonds, and or derivatives that are traded as one unit. So as its name suggests, ETFs are traded on the market, such as the NASDAQ or the NYSE ARCA. A really popular ETF that has really um, gone off over the past few years are index funds. Those are funds that track the performance of a given market index. So a very popular one is the S&P 500, which of course are the 500 largest uh, publicly traded companies uh, within US stock exchanges. Uh, and on top of that, ETFs can be very versatile. There are ETFs that can go long, there are ETFs that can go short, and there are even ETFs that are actually leveraged. Uh, so an example of that would be like TQQQ. Um, another investment product that's very similar to ETFs, but are a little bit different, are mutual funds, which I think a lot of you have probably heard about before. So uh, the structure of the fund and the fact that they bundle assets is very similar, but mutual funds, typically speaking, charge higher fees 
and they're also not traded on the market, uh, which means that the prices only change daily and there isn't uh, any intraday movement, unlike ETFs. Uh, and mutual funds are also primarily used uh, by retail investors. Yeah, so we know about all those equities and I'm wondering how do in the, sorry, institutional investors use stocks in their portfolios? Yeah, so I think the most important thing to really understand about equities and their relation to portfolios is that they don't offer a guaranteed rate of return, uh, unlike bonds, for example. And because of this, uh, they're considered riskier. Uh, and as Warren Buffett has also said, the cash flows of stocks are much more unpredictable than the cash flows of bonds. But because with bonds, there are coupon, coupon payments and an interest rate that is written on it, so it's considered less risky. And as a result of this, the percentage of equities or stocks in a portfolio for an institutional investor really depends on the risk profile of that portfolio and that fund. So low risk investment funds typically allocate very little or none of their capital towards uh, equities. They usually put it more into fixed income assets such as bonds and CDs, which Navdeep will go in depth uh, later on in this podcast. Uh, medium risk funds usually allocate some of their capital into equities. And this is because equities do offer higher upside than fixed income assets. Uh, over time, if you look at a graph, the long-term returns of equities tend to be higher than those of fixed income assets such as bonds and CDs. Uh, and medium risk, risk funds usually will purchase stocks uh, that are more defensive and in blue chip companies just to kind of hedge that risk. Uh, and on the other hand, high risk funds will usually put a lot of their portfolio or all of it into equities. Uh, and the type of stocks that are purchased, uh, whether or not it's value, growth, defensive or cyclical, again, really just depends on the risk profile of that fund, as well as um, really the investment objectives uh, from the lens of the manager. So now that I've uh, kind of gone over how institutional investors use equities, uh, we can now kind of talk about how uh, individual investors. So really to try to approach this from the view of personal finance. So I think, Navi, can you kind of dive into that? So I think while learning about value investing and utilizing a valuation framework, it is important and it can allow you to have more confidence because of that objectivity. You have to keep in mind that markets are always uncertain. So there's systematic risk which is inherent to an entire market. An example would be COVID. And when everyone was in lockdown, uh, it impacted all stocks because everybody's home, no, there's not a lot of economic activity. And there's also unsystematic risk, which is unique to an industry or a business. An example would be um, your operations can be threatened by an unforeseen risk, like a natural disaster that wrecks a production facility or something. Another example, um, happened to Worldcom in 2002, where they actually cooked their books. And they, when they were caught, the, the whole firm went bankrupt. And shareholders were the last to receive compensation after creditors and bondholders. So there's a lot of risks that you can't account for, uh, despite, you know, a very thorough and objective valuation framework. And I also think at a young age, so by the time you you are 18 years old and you can open a tax-free savings account. I think you can make much more riskier investments, but you should also go along on those investments, right? 
you don't want to day trade and pay all these uh, fees for that transaction. And uh, you are much more able to make those risky investments because uh, you have more disposable income. And I guess at that age, you're not really paying a mortgage or anything like that. And when you do have those car payments and liabilities, it's best to dial down uh, because you want to go for less risky growth stock investments and opt for uh, maybe blue chip stocks or preferred shares that uh, you receive more regular uh, periodic income from dividends or even bonds, right? With stocks, I think the one thing to take away is only invest in the amount that you're willing to lose. So we talked about equities and they're pretty cool. They're well-researched and talked about by everyone, including in our articles. But another type of security is the money market, which is a little bit more low key and people know a little less about it. So the money market is a subsector of fixed income securities and they consist of very short term debt securities that are hi highly marketable, meaning liquid. These are debt instruments issued by various sources like corporations, banks, or the government. However, many of these securities are traded in large denominations. So institutional investors are the primary buyers. Small investors can access money market funds, which are mutual funds that pool the resources of many investors and purchase a wide variety of money market securities on behalf of their clients. So firstly, treasury bills, are the most liquid of all Canadian money market instruments. They're issued by the government. Investors buy them at a discount from the stated maturity value. And at the maturity date, the holder of the T-bill receives the face value of the investment. Remember, these securities have maturities of like three, six, and 12 months. So they're very short term and they're issued bi-weekly and sold by auction at chartered banks. The difference between T-bills and government bonds is the maturity date. T-bills always mature within a year, whereas bonds are longer term. The risk of T-bills is that you have to bid competitively whenever they're sold. If a bid is too high, investors may overpay, or if the bid is too low, then it may be succeeded by a higher bid. T-bills are usually purchased by chartered banks, investment dealers, the Bank of Canada, or individuals who get them from government security dealers. T-bills are highly liquid, and I think that's the main takeaway. Another money market security is a certificate of deposit, which is a time deposit with a chartered bank. You basically leave a lump sum deposit that's untouched for a predetermined period of time, and the bank makes an agreement where a premium interest is paid on top of the principal at the end of the fixed term of deposit. A similar debt instrument is a guaranteed investment certificate or GIC. And if you're learning about personal finance or investing yourself, you may come across these types. There are several other types of money market securities that are primarily utilized by corporations or institutions for liquidity purposes. So for example, commercial paper is essentially unsecured corporate debt. And another example is repurchased agreements, which are short-term government mm -hmm. securities. Yeah, so these securities obviously sound very interesting. So I just wanted to ask, like in what cases would retail investors use money market funds? So a retail investor 
encounters these funds when seeking low-risk, uh, highly liquid investments with a larger return than a bank account. So for example, if you're saving for a trip to Europe within a year, uh, you may want to invest in a money market fund and get a higher interest than you would with a savings account at a bank. And you know the maturity date is very short term, so you'll be able to withdraw your money um, over that short period of time instead of, let's say if you b bought a bond, bond maturities are usually over a year or more than that. And you wanna make sure that that investment is liquid and you could uh, retrieve that cash that you put aside uh, whenever you want. Albeit if you do take out money earlier than, than the maturity date of the money market fund, then you do lose out on some return. But the advantages are that these funds are pretty diversified especially in the United States, the SAC mandates that money market funds cannot invest more than 5% in any one issuer. But the cons are that money market funds are uh, sensitive to monetary policy and interest rate fluctuations. Also, they're very short term, right? And because they have a maturity date of less than one year, they're not suitable for long-term investing or retirement planning because they don't offer as much capital appreciation but they are low risk, low return securities. Yeah, so money market securities obviously are characterized as very low risk and low return. And on the other end of that are derivatives, which are high risk and high return. So derivatives, simply speaking, are financial assets with values that are determined based on certain underlying assets. So this can include things like stocks, currencies, as well as commodities. Uh, derivatives often incorporate leverage, uh, which is really what makes it so high risk and high reward is the leverage that it uses. And derivatives are also used as popular hedging instruments uh, because of the leverage that it incorporates. Uh, and it also allows institutional investors to make high reward bets with a small amount of capital, which is also called speculation. Yeah, I'm wondering what's a call and put option because I've heard of it as a derivative. Yeah, so call and put options are typically used for stocks. So a call option is used if an investor believes that the price of the stock will go up. So if they're trying to go long. And on the other hand, they'll use a put option if they want to go short on a stock. So simply speaking, an option contract just represents an option, right? So a choice for the investor to purchase a given amount of shares of a certain stock. So for example, if I purchased uh, let's say uh, a call option on Tesla uh, and the option expires in six months. Uh, that basically gives me an option to purchase 100 shares of the firm uh, at a given price point, basically. So with any option, uh, there are a few things that are really important to keep in mind. There's something called the premium, which is the price of the contract that an investor pays uh, to the seller of that contract. And there's also something called a strike price. So let's say uh, the price of a certain stock was $20 and I uh, purchased a call option in which the strike price was $25. If that price never hits $25, I will lose all of my capital. I will lose all of my premium. However, if it does go above the strike price and I decide to exercise my option, that is how I can make. What is the risk level of options? 
Yeah, so as I mentioned before, obviously options are considered very risky because of the significant amount of leverage that they employ. Uh, so just to kind of give an example, uh, let's say you purchased a call option on Google stock, or let's say, or uh, Alphabet stock actually would be the more accurate uh, name. So let's say Alphabet stock increased by 10%, right? If you purchased a security and, and you had a long position, then you would have a gain of 10%. However, if I purchased a call option, there's actually a good chance I could have made significantly more than 10% on that investment because of the leverage that options and derivatives in general employ. Uh, however, the opposite is also true. I could lose significantly more money, right? If Google stock was to fall by 5% and I purchased a call option and the price never reaches the strike price by the expiration date, I will lose all of my capital. So that kind of just illustrates the high risk and high reward of options. So then how are options used by institutional investors? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So uh, because of the leverage, uh, there are really two main ways that institutional investors can use these assets. They can either use it to hedge a certain position, so they could use uh, call options to hedge a short position, and they could use put options to hedge a long position on a specific stock or a group of stocks. Uh, and of course, there are also instances where fund managers can use options to speculate on a firm if they really believe that um, a stock is going to go up or go down uh, in the short and medium term. So now that I've wrapped up on uh, options, which are more related to stocks, I'll talk about something that's related to mortgages. So another really interesting derivative is something called the mortgage-backed security or an MBS. So these are effectively just bundles of mortgages are purchased from banks that have issued them. And when they're bundled together, um, they're put into a fund, which is called a mortgage-backed security. So these securities actually act very similar um, to bonds in that investors will get periodic payments similar to bond coupons. Uh, and after we'll talk more about bonds uh, later on. And so these periodic payments obviously are obtained from just the periodic mortgage payments uh, that uh, the borrowers give to uh, the institution. Uh, and it's also important to note that these securities are asset-backed. Uh, and this is, of course, because houses are collateral uh, that is used uh, for a mortgage. Uh, and NAFTA will also go deeper into what collateral is uh, later on into the episode. Wow, that sounds interesting. But I've heard about more mortgage-backed securities in the movie The Big Short. Weren't they very important in the role of the Great Recession? Yeah, so I think mortgage-backed securities are probably most infamous uh, for the Great Recession, uh, as well as the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, which led to the financial crisis uh, in the late 2000s. Uh, and the reason why this happened is because financial institutions uh, lent um, a lot of mortgages to borrowers that really weren't worthy for them. So they had very, very low FICO scores. Uh, and despite this, uh, these mortgages were then bundled into mortgage-backed securities, and then they were classified as investment grade. And as a result of this, a lot of investors, as well as banks, had a lot of these toxic assets in their balance sheets, which uh, almost basically bankrupted all of the major financial institutions within the United States, as well as abroad. Uh, so mortgage-backed securities can be used by institutional investors as a fixed income investment, uh, despite these concerns. And this is because after 2008 and after the financial crisis, 
uh, these assets were heav uh, heavily regulated, uh, specifically under the Dodd-Frank Act, which mandated that if a financial institution was to lend a mortgage and repackage them into a mortgage-backed security, they had to keep at least 5% of those mortgages within their balance sheets to kind of prevent this uh, from occurring again. So now that we've kind of went through uh, mortgage-backed securities, we can now talk about another type of derivative, which are called futures. So futures are basically financial contracts that involve two parties where there's a buyer and a seller. So the buyer is obligated by the contract to purchase a given asset at a, spec a specified price and date from a seller. So in a way you could argue that they're actually very, very similar to options in the, in the way that they're structured. The only difference is that um, with options, you are not obligated to actually exercise the contract. You have the option to do it. However, with the futures contract, you are actually obligated to uh, make the purchase uh, before or during uh, the uh, agreed upon date. Uh, and so to really, I think, illustrate um, how futures work, uh, we can talk about a very uh, common type of future that's traded, uh, which is called a commodity future. So this is an agreement uh, to either buy or sell a predetermined amount of a commodity at a given price on a given date in the future. Wait, I'm a little bit confused. What is a commodity and what are some examples where they're used in future contracts? Yeah, so commodities, uh, generally speaking, are, any, are basically just raw materials that we can use to manufacture. So this can include metals like silver, copper, as well as gold. Uh, it can also include things like oil, which we extract, as well as even things that we eat, such as corn or wheat. So commodity futures are typically very risky uh, in that their returns are drastically magnified compared to the actual movement of the underlying asset the underlying commodity. And this is what really makes it a derivative. So to really uh, explain this, I'll just try to give a numerical example. So let's say you're an investor and you had $5,000 to invest in commodity futures. Let's say that you were able to purchase 1,000 barrels of oil, uh, each valued at $50 a piece, right? This would mean that your investment is 10 times leverage, right? This is because you're using $5,000 of capital to purchase $50,000 worth of assets. So in this case, let's say that the price of oil moved up by 2%. Now, if you were just to invest in oil, in, in the price of oil, let's say through an ETF, then you would earn approximately a 2% return on investment. However, because a commodity future contract is leveraged, you would make 20% on your investment. And this is because, again, it's leveraged 10 times over. But of course, this could also work the other way around. If there was a 2% drop in the price, you would also have a 20% loss. So this really illustrates the risk profile uh, of commodity futures and derivatives in general. So there are a few ways in which these uh, securities could be used. You could use them to speculate on commodity prices. So if an investor is really, really convinced that the supply of gold was to go down and its demand was to go up, then they could use derivatives to bet on gold prices. Uh, and uh, they could also be used to hedge uh, in certain conditions, uh, although that is less common than speculation. Another type of feature uh, that is pretty common and, and is related to stocks are index futures. So these are futures based on uh, certain stock market indices, such as the NASDAQ and S&P 500. 
so these derivatives, uh, similar to uh, commodity futures, can be used to speculate on short-term market movement, or, or it can be used to hedge. Uh, so for example, you could short sell these instruments to hedge a certain long equity positions that you have if you want to increase the balance of the portfolio. Uh, different types of futures also include currency futures as well as in interest rate futures. Uh, currency futures, as the name suggests, are those are contracts um, that oblige uh, a certain investor to exchange one currency for another uh, at a future date. So currency futures are really, really useful to hedge currency risk. So if you were to purchase securities that are denominated in the currency of a foreign country, using uh, currency futures can be really useful in hedging certain currency risks uh, in exchange rate risks. Another type of future are interest rate futures, um, which basically just allows an investor to um, bet on changes uh, in interest rates, uh, which could include things like um, the effective federal funds rate, which is set by the Federal Reserve. Uh, so um, just to go over, I think, a few more types of derivatives that are a little bit less common, but are also important. There are things called forward contracts. So these are similar to future contracts in nature. The only difference is that they're traded over the counter and they're private. Um, so that means that the prices aren't really set by the market per se, um, but they're just more uh, private agreements between two markets, uh, between two parties. Uh, and so these are more likely to be used uh, by institutional investors. And then the final type of derivative that is pretty interesting are something called swaps. So swaps are contracts that exchanges the cash flows of two underlying assets. However, that being said, those two assets are not exchanged, only the cash flows of them are exchanged. So swaps typically involve two parties exchanging loans that have fixed interest rate payments and variable interest rate payments. So for example, one party could offer uh, a loan with a fixed 3% uh, coupon payment, and that could be swapped uh, with another party offering variable uh, interest payments. So for example, a loan that's based on a benchmark interest rate such as LIBOR. So I have another question. How would retail investors and institutional investors use derivatives in their portfolios? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. So as I mentioned before, obviously these assets are considered very, very risky. And so it's also important to approach them with caution, right? It's actually very easy to actually lose all of your principal with derivatives, right? So for example, if all of your call options don't hit their strike price, you will lose all of your principal. Uh, and this makes these assets even riskier than something like stocks, because with stocks, it's actually very difficult to lose all of your principal, of course, unless the company files for bankruptcy. And even then, uh, it's not guaranteed that you'll actually lose all of it. Um, so there are mainly a few uses uh, for uh, retail and institutional investors uh, in terms of derivatives. The first, as I mentioned before, is just speculation. But if you're a retail investor, it's important that you have to be very, very careful. But even if you're very confident in your analysis, it's still very possible to lose a significant chunk of your investment. So I wouldn't personally recommend putting more than, let's say, 5 to 10% of your portfolio into derivative assets. Um, and then the second use is that, uh, and the second use, which is a little bit more uh, sophisticated and a little bit less risky, is just to use them to hedge. And the reason why derivatives are really useful for hedging is because they have significant leverage. Um, but of course, if you do want to use them to hedge, you should ensure that there's a significant negative correlation between 
the hedge as well as the assets that you're trying to hedge, right? Because if there isn't that correlation, um, the hedge may not be all that effective. Uh, and, and institutional investors obviously just use these um, derivatives for about the same reasons, right? It's either to speculate or to hedge. However, they usually use a more sophisticated approach to uh, purchase such uh, securities. So for example, unlike a retail investor, they're not going to like uh, put all of their portfolio in like Tesla call options, uh, which is something you can see on like Wall Street bets, for example. Uh, so um, that basically wraps up my explanation for derivatives. So um, I think another asset that's also really interesting uh, are bonds, which uh, Nafti will be talking about. Yeah, the bond market is composed of longer term borrowing instruments than those traded in the money market. So if you want the textbook definition of bonds, they're long term debt securities issued by government agencies or corporations that are collateralized by assets. Even nonprofit organizations can issue what is called a debenture, bonds that pay interest to the bondholder but aren't secured by collateral. Yeah, so I mentioned collateral uh, a few minutes back. Could you help explain what that even is and why should we actually care about it as an investor? Yeah, so this is a really important distinction within bonds. Collateral basically means that if the issuer cannot make payments and defaults on the loan, the bond is still insured by their assets. So for example, property, equipment, or other income streams. As mentioned before, mortgage-backed securities were secured by people's homes. On the flip side, unsecured bonds are not insured by any asset, but by the full faith of the issuer. This isn't necessarily bad because US treasury bonds are unsecured and yet they are the safest bonds you could buy, albeit with a very low return. Owners of unsecured bonds have a claim on the assets of the defaulted issuer, but only after investors whose securities are higher in the capital structure are paid first. Yeah, so bonds obviously sound very interesting. So I was just wondering, like, how do they actually work? So like, how do we make money off of purchasing bonds? Okay, I have a whole explanation for this. The par value of a bond is its face value, or the amount returned to the investor at the maturity date when the bond is due. The market price of the bond is a selling price. And that is expressed as a percentage of the bond's par value. For instance, a bond that matures in one year has a par value of $1,000. It may be quoted to sell for 95.0, which actually means it sells at uh, $950. At maturity next year, the bondholder will receive the $1,000 par value and the bond will cease to exist because the debt obligation has been paid by the issuer. Another way you make money is the coupon interest rate on the bond. And that represents the annual rate of interest to be paid to the bondholder. So with the previous $1,000 par value, a coupon rate of 6% means $60 is paid annually to the investor. Coupon payments are usually paid um, every six months. So as a bondholder, you would receive $30 until maturity. So, Bonds from different types of issuers offer various features. One characteristic is a call feature, and that allows the issuer to repurchase the bond from the investor before maturity. And this is really good for the issuer, which is why these bonds uh, offer a slightly higher return 
uh, over the time period that the bondholder owns it. Another characteristic is a sinking fund, and that is a pool of money that is set aside by a corporation or government to repurchase a set amount of bonds within a period of time. And that acts as a mandatory call feature, but not all of the bonds that you own will be take, taken away. Um, it's just the amount of money that is in that pool that is used to buy those bonds. Another feature is an extendable bond. And that allows the investor to extend the maturity date of a short-term bond. Because when interest rates are decreasing, bondholders benefit because they can extend the maturity of the bonds at a slightly higher rate than what is currently available in the market. But extendable bonds tend to offer lower returns uh, in terms of the coupon rate than non-extendable bonds. Also, a put feature is another desirable characteristic for bondholders because you can redeem the bond at face value before it matures. If interest rates go up, investors can redeem the par value and put that money elsewhere into bonds with higher coupon rates. Yeah, so the different types of bonds definitely sounds really interesting. And I think you provided a really excellent explanation. So now that you've mentioned uh, interest rates, I was just wondering how do they affect bonds? Yeah, great question. A lot of people find this tricky, but most bonds pay a fixed interest rate that becomes more attractive if interest rates fall. That drives the demand and the price of the bond. Essentially, you need to remember that bonds and interest rates have an inverse relationship. When interest rates rise, the cost of borrowing increases and investors will no longer prefer lower fixed interest rate uh, paid by a bond and that will result in a decline in its price to make it more attractive. So zero coupon bonds provide a clear example of how this me mechanism uh, works in practice because they don't pay regular interest and instead derive all of their value from the difference between the purchase price and the par value paid at maturity. Prices of bonds go down to attract demand and go up when the issuer realizes they're giving up too much return. And so, one major risk with bonds is default. Ultimately, bonds are debt instruments where the issuer is, well, they owe you money. The same way a company can encounter solvency problems and default on a bank loan, your bonds can face default and the risk is amplified if you hold a debenture which isn't collateralized by any assets. And so that is why we have bond ratings. A bond rating is the grade given to a bond by a rating service that indicates the credit quality. So a few examples of bond rating agencies are Moody's and Standard & Poor's. So the rating agency looks at the firm's financial strength and some external factors. It's a little more complicated than simple uh, financial ratios, but the rating scale goes from a C or D to triple A. And uh, usually investment grade bonds are anywhere from A to triple A, and junk bonds are very poorly rated, so you would have like a C or D or a B, right? And there are different types of issuers. So you have obviously corporate versus government issued bonds. Corporate bonds usually have a higher return, but as we know, the US Treasury bond, for example, is a very, very low risk bond. And it's, it's because it's uncollateralized, uh, it is, uh, essentially like the full faith of the issuer that ensures that you'll get your payment back. 
there's different types of government bonds, uh, federal, state, and municipal. And I guess one interesting fact is that municipal bonds aren't taxed. So that's a really good, I guess, uh, side note if you're looking to invest in bonds personally. And there's another type of security that uh, combines debt and equity, and these are called the hybrid securities. So firstly, you have preferred stock, which is a different type of stock. You have common shares, which is equity that a company uh, that allows you to have voting rights in that company, but also a share of the profit. However, preferred stock, they get priority in the payment of dividends and upon asset distribution if the company goes under. Preferred stocks don't get voting rights and are rated by credit agencies the same way bonds are. And the other hybrid security is convertible bonds. These allow the investor to convert the bond into a stated number of shares of the issuer's stock at a certain price. This feature enables bond investors to uh, have the advantage when the company's stock price rises. Convertible bonds thus offer a lower return than non-convertible bonds. And if the stock price doesn't rise to a specified trigger price, the convertible bond provides a lower return to investors. So these bonds offer investors a two-for-one instrument that's suited for higher risk tolerance. Yeah, so bonds obviously sound very interesting. So just from the approach of a retail investor, how would you look at these securities and how would you use them in the portfolio? So high-risk bonds, uh, which are, have a lower rating, they offer higher interest payments to offset that risk of default that you incur. Therefore, I think it's important based on where you are in your investment uh, lifespan to weigh the trade-off between potential return and risk. Uh, alternatively, if you prefer less risk, then you must accept a lower return on investment as a trade-off for that peace of mind. Overall, I think uh, bonds can be really useful in your portfolio to transition from high-risk equities or uh, any other high-risk investment that, you're, uh, that your portfolio consists of and move on to uh, more, I guess, consistent and safe periodic payment in terms of interest and the principal that's paid on those bonds. So me personally, I think I would, um, when I'm young, I would buy more like high risk securities, high, um, I guess high growth uh, potential stocks. But as I near retirement age, um, obviously I wanna cash out on those stocks and then look towards bonds. Uh, and then, you know, like by the time you stop working, you still have those uh, periodic interest payments and uh, all that money coming from bonds, albeit very um, low risk bonds. You know, like I personally don't think that, I, I personally think that you should go for in investment grade corporate bonds because those offer a lot higher uh, interest. But yeah, that's sort of the strategy that I personally would use. Yeah, so this about concludes uh, our podcast episode for today. We really hoped that you enjoyed it and that you learned a lot about the different types of securities uh, that institutions use, as well as how we could approach them from a personal finance point of view. So big thanks to you for, turning, for tuning in into this week's podcast uh, and make sure to hear future episodes of the Investigative Podcast. So cheers.